Hey there, and welcome to the Rock Reavers podcast. Here we are all about believing and proclaiming the word. We're totally given to true worship and obedient in taking the gospel to the nations through missions. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope that you'll be blessed by this message. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I have the privilege of continuing to teach you from the book of Songs of Solomon as I believe God has taught me as I sought him to give me the truth of his word. I don't know whether it's possible to get uh, Songs of Solomon chapter 4. It's the only one I will ask for. So you can start loading it. It can start loading. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I don't know whether it's Victor or the people at the back. I'm happy to have it in the NIV. Let me, let me just qualify a few things, read this text, then I will approach it at some point. I said on the first Sunday that human sexual expression as its pure form in the context that God has allowed it to happen is an expression of God's love. Now this is part of what is captured in the book of Songs of Solomon. So in the book of Songs of Solomon, there is no impurity. This is a book of holiness. Everything written in this book is led and directed and ordered by the Holy Spirit. So if you take time to study this book, you will see places where the beloved speaks, and that is you, the Shulamite woman. And there are places where the lover speaks. Now there are three segments of the book of Songs of Solomon. There is the dating and courtship part between one and four. Chapter 4 is the wedding day. Hallelujah. This is the wedding day. And then onwards, it shows the responsibility of the bride and the groom to each other after the wedding day. So today, because of the interest of time and because we cannot study the whole book in the 30 minutes that you allow me to preach, I will just read 4 so that you can capture the essence of, of this wedding day. So I will read for you. Or we can read together. Which one works best? We read together. I, some people are like, no, we are not reading Songs of Solomon with you. God told you. He did not tell us. So I will read for you. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful your eyes behind your veil. They are doves. Your hair is like a flock of gods descending from the hills or from the mountain of Gilead if you're in KJV. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shown, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David. KICC in our context. Built with courses of stone. On it hung a thousand shields. All of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns. Like twin fawns of a gazelle. That browse amongst the lilies. Until the day breaks. And the shadows flee. I will go to the mountain of Maya. And to the hill of incense. You are all together beautiful, my darling. God tells you, you are all together beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Senir. 
the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain's haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride, my church. You have stolen my heart. With one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister. I'll finish here. My bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Now this is the word of the lover to the beloved. And at some point we will get to it and we will talk about it. Now last week one of the things that I was led by God to talk about is shame. That at the cross at Calvary, Jesus says, I took up your infirmity and I carried your shame. So I feel led by God to say a few more things about shame before I delve into the word of God for today. He took up your infirmities and he carried your shame. Now, shame is a condition of being in disrepute and humiliation. And as long as we are alive, including your children, we have experienced a form of shame. Shame is part of our day-to-day -day life. I believe that shame is one of the biggest weapons in the devil's arsenal that he uses to discourage the believer and keep the believer from reaching the potential, from fulfilling the purpose that God has destined and ordained for the believer to reach. Now, I, I have my kinsmen here. Des, uh, Mashauri, we are village mates. Eh? So what, what we, I'll tell you and Des can confirm that in our village, there is a lot of halabaloo around death. I know you guys know about Western and death. We, we are very serious with funerals. We, yeah, we don't joke. We sell everything to make sure that our loved ones get a befitting send-off. Now, one of the things that is believed by the Maragolis, where my dad comes from, is the dead can hear you. So if you come for a funeral in our compound, do not be surprised to see my relatives talking to the, to the casket. It's our culture. They have not lost their mind. It is just our culture. They apparently, according to our culture, in the last week, you need to settle all the scores that you have with the dead. That's why we take long. Like if you hated them, there's a day they talked to you badly. They did not serve you chicken. They served you chicken wings instead of, you know, the right part of the chicken. That is the time to settle that score. If you fulizard for them and then they have never returned that fulizard, that is the time to settle that score. So we are very peculiar around death. But one of the, one of the weird things that happens in Western is death, there are some types of death that are dealt with in shame. Like if you had a child if you had a relative who committed suicide, in Western, it's considered a shameful death. In fact, they are buried next to the toilet. And the, and the burial is done in shame. It's done quickly. If you went and asked the father of a child who committed suicide about what happened to their child, they would not be willing to talk about it openly. Because the culture has around a lot of stigma and shame around suicide. I know that... Uh, Many of us experienced this thing called bedwetting. And at some point, your parents expected it to stop. It was cute when you were three. Then it became a problem when you were 10 years. 
and your parents turned it into a prayer item. And it became an aspect of shame. Where I went to high school, there are one or two people who uh, that uh, vice still followed them. And I could see the shame when they had to carry their mattress at five in the AM and take it to the sun. And I could see the judgment every time anyone passed next to your bed in high school and saw that your mattress was absent. They made conclusions that these are the bedwetters that we still have amongst us. Shame. And I could see the shame that that carried. There are so many things in life that the enemy has introduced unnecessarily to shame you. It's marriage. It could be marriage. You're 30, you're living your life, you've done your master's. It does not concern you that you're married. Then some person in church or some neighbor or some guy who's just busy comes and tells you, hey, you're not concerned that you are 35 now and so when, when are we meeting our relative? You are under which relative? My mother. People have made shame a part of our culture. And you think that when you get married, it will end. Five years down the line, you have no children. Then someone comes in church and says, Ay, Kwani, uh, when are we getting the fruit of the womb? There are those who ask genuinely. But the enemy uses such opportunities to introduce shame. And shame is one of the biggest, biggest, biggest weapons in the arsenal of the enemy. Most of the time, most of the time he shames you with something that you know, the two of you. Most of the time it could be a sin. It could be an activity that you did many years ago. It could be that you had an abortion or you had multiple abortions. It could be that there was a place you were before you came to church. And the enemy is telling you, you, even you, you're lifting up your hands in worship. Shame. The enemy has weaponized shame to keep down the believer. Now this is what God says to you about what he did for you on the cross, the rose of Sharon at Calvary. In Isaiah 61, he says that instead of your shame, you shall receive a double portion. Have you heard of that word double portion? Have you heard of the song double, double? It comes from that text. Isaiah 61, instead of your shame, you shall receive a double portion. It says, you shall receive your inheritance in the land. It's Isaiah 61, 7, I believe. And you shall receive a double portion for your shame. Now, it's interesting that God would trade shame for a double portion of blessing. That it would be enough for God to remove the shame. But instead, he has gone ahead and given you a double portion blessing for your shame. Now, the double portion blessing is bigger than what you think. Sometimes when we, when we sing these songs, my God is good, or everything are double, double, you think of twos, right? Instead of one Range Rover, I'll have two. Instead of one house, I'll have two. That's cheapening the double portion blessing. It's bigger than having two of your desire. It's bigger than having two plots in Siokimau, two plots in Ruaka. It's much bigger than that. Now, in Hebrew culture, the double portion inheritance was the preserve of the firstborn. Because the firstborn in a house was charged with the responsibility of carrying the legacy of the house to the next generation. So when God says, instead of your shame, I will give you a double portion blessing, Jesus is saying, I will share everything that is mine with you. This is bigger than cars. I will share everything that belongs to me with you. That the victory that he procured at Calvary when he bled, it belongs exclusively to him but he chooses to share it with you. That the resources of heaven, they belong exclusively to Jesus, 
but he shares it with you. The angels are servants of God. They serve you because of Jesus, not because you deserve it, because of Jesus. So when he says, I will command my angels concerning you, you are receiving the double portion blessing. When God answers your prayers in the name of Jesus, when you quote the name of Jesus, you are invoking the double portion blessing because this belongs to Jesus. That's why the name of Jesus is very important because when you pray in the name of Jesus, you are declaring that what I am asking for, I do not deserve. But because Christ has allowed me by grace to share in the double portion blessing, I invoke his name because in his name, he deserves it. And he has allowed me to share in it. That's why when you are faced with evil and demons, you say, in the name of Jesus. Because they shudder at the power of Jesus. It is not in what you carry. It is in who you carry. And in whose name you invoke. The name of Jesus. Now if you grew up during the Moi times, you understand the power of a name. Moi visited me when I was in high school. Pastor Kogi, where were you when Moi was president? Moi visited us when I was in high school. And everything came to a standstill. Chemistry, biology, those things that you consider important, standstill. All of us were ushered to the road to go and clap for the president. Two hours before he came, we were clapping. He came, he gave us a speech, we clapped. And let me tell you, we were not forced. We wanted to. There was something in the inside of you that recognized that, eh? The person that is coming to visit us is very important. He was a president, an imperial president. You have to experience an imperial president to know what power is. Back then, you would be given a letter by Moi or by your relative in government. And you'd walk into any company and get a job. If you walk to KCB and say they have a letter from the president, they will make you a manager. They don't even care whether you are good in maths, whether you are good in home science. They will make you a manager because of the name that you have invoked. There are ministers who would invoke the name of Moi illegally and they would walk into Dobi and drive out with new cars. And the owner could do nothing because of the name. If, during presidential functions, they would pardon people who are in death row. I mean, this guy Kosea, he killed your cat, killed your dog, he was jailed. Then one day Moi just says, ah, kill him to end Nyumbani. And there's nothing you can do about it because of the name that gave him freedom. The name of Jesus is higher than the name of Moi. So there is power in the name of Jesus. There is a double portion blessing that God has released upon you. So every time you carry your shame, you demean the name of Jesus. Every time you continue to wallow in your shame, you cheapen the blood that was shed for you at Calvary. Because that blood is precious. That name is mighty. And when Jesus says he has dealt with it, he has dealt with it. Now, I don't know whether you have ever visited um, a holistic clinic. Have you visited a holistic clinic? The first time you go to a holistic clinic, it's very strange. Yeah? Because you've walked in, you can't eat lunch because you have a stomach bug. So you expect to be given Imodium, and then you go back to eating your lunch. Then if you go to a holistic clinic, they start asking you questions. Say, so what, what do you eat? How's your diet? Do you exercise? You're like, what do these things have to do with my with my stomachache. But the principle behind a holistic clinic is they want to, to treat you and your symptoms and everything that has come with that that disturbs you. Now, one of the things that Jesus came to do is to do a holistic work. He did not just come to deal with sin. He came to deal with the effects of sin. 
That's why in Isaiah 61, he says, he will set the captives free. He will give beauty for ashes. He will give a garment of praise instead of despair, an oil of gladness instead of mourning. Do you know mourning and pain and death is caused by sin and caused by the enemy? It is not the plan of God. So when he deals with pain, he deals also with mourning. Jesus basically says in Isaiah 61 that I know that some of you carry pain. And he's saying, it is not I who caused you pain. It is sin. It is the enemy. It is the enemy that took the life of your loved one. And there is a pain that you carry. There is a mourning that is still in your heart. And he is willing to give you an oil of gladness instead of mourning. If you release yourself to the rose of Sharon, you will receive an oil of gladness instead of mourning. People will wonder, how is it that your countenance is so lifted when you have experienced such a grievous, painful experience? It's because when you turn to him, he will give you an oil of gladness instead of mourning. I don't know that you understand what despair is. Despair is the absence of hope. When he talks about a garment of praise instead of despair, despair is a total and absolute absence of hope. Despair is Sarah being told you will have a child at 90. And she's like, honestly, thank you so much. I waited for this child. Uh, menopause came. It's fine. I do not need that child anymore. That's what despair is. But God says, I will come and give you praise instead of despair. That Christ is able to resurrect the things that you have hoped for, for so long, and your hope has died. Because there is nothing that is impossible with Jesus. There is nothing that is impossible with his name. There is nothing that his blood cannot handle. There is no pain that his hand cannot heal. There is not sin that his blood cannot wash away. Jesus is serious about dealing with shame. And dealing with pain in your life. So I pray for you today. If you are carrying any pain. That this shall be the day that God shall begin to heal you. That you shall not be defined by that death. Regardless of how painful it was. That you shall not sink into deep and deep depression. That God shall lift your head. That Christ shall lift your head. That he shall carve open your heart. And fill your heart with joy. The joy that only he can give the joy that he procured for you at the cross of Calvary. Today I silence every voice of the accuser that is trying to carry shame from your past to your present life. I declare that you are freed from that today. Not in my name but in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Instead of your shame you shall receive a devil portion. I want to go to the text. I hadn't even gone to the text, but I will go there now. Don't worry, I will not keep you for long. Now the text that I just read that has disappeared <laughs> somewhere is a very interesting text. And one of the things I want to say to you, let me just say two things and leave the rest for another time. It is important for you to understand your responsibilities in a relationship. Right? That's why when you get married, they are aunties. It's heavier on the ladies than on the men. Let me admit. There are aunties who will come with a kiondo and put it on your head and tell you when he comes in the evening, he should find food that is ready. 
you know, he should find Kitambo before life changes. Thank God for technology. You don't have to, don't have to do those bafu gimmicks anymore. But there is a responsibility that is expected on the husband and on the wife, by society and by God. Now, in this marriage that is between you and God, there is a responsibility that is expected of you. Now, there are two things that are expected of you. I will do, I'll say two things, then I'll finish. The first one is that you must know God. You must know God. It's that simple. It's very strange for you to be in a relationship with someone who you do not know. When we want to discover Pastor Doc's birthday, the first person that we will go to is his wife. And if we discover she does not know his birthday, there is something on the inside of us that will judge her. Like, how are you in a relationship with a person whose birthday you do not know? There is a desire, there is a, there is a longing, there is a self-sense motivation in the inside of someone who is in love to know their lover. You know their birthdays. There is this game that modern day MCs play in weddings. Have you seen that game where they remove the shoe of the bride Pastor Kogi, did you play that game? And the shoe of the groom of Pastor Kogi is a Barbie then with these village games. Those games, then they, you know, at who proposed first, then all of us are judging you based on, on, on how similar your answers are. You know, who is it that said, I love you first? Who is it that paid for the first date? Who is it that loves movies? You know, we are testing to see how much do you know of each other. There is a reason why this love letter has a part for the beloved. You know, it could have been a one love letter from the lover to the beloved. But God has included a place for the beloved to respond to the lover. And one of the things you see in the response of the beloved is the beloved has invested in knowing his lover. And God expects you to invest in knowing him. You have responsibilities in this relationship. You have to seek God, not as a duty, but because you are in a loving relationship. This is not research. This is not something that you Google. This is not his, his profile on Wikipedia. It is a knowledge that comes from intimacy. It's a knowledge that comes from relationship. Now, there are two, two, two things that are important in a marriage, and I said it last time, with all the purity that comes from God. It is the wedding day and the wedding night. The wedding night is part of the wedding day, right? Those who are lawyers will tell you that if the wedding night does not happen right, your wedding can be annulled. So there is even an expectation from government that there is an intimacy that should happen between the wedding night and the honeymoon. So your father expects it, your relatives expect it, your church expects it, God expects it, the government, did you know, expects it for that marriage to be sealed. Now, there is a consummated, that is the word. Now, there is something about being naked and unashamed. If you heard the sermon that Pastor Doc preached from Genesis chapter 3, there is an expectation from God. Because after they had come together, after they had left their mother and father, the Bible continues to say, and the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. And for most of us, we bear shame in our nudity. You look at yourself in the mirror and 80% of the times you see the things that need to, to be corrected. Yet on the wedding night, you're supposed to bear that image of you to someone and be unashamed. 
and God expects that person to see the beauty in your flaws and you to see the beauty in their flaws. Now Jesus declared his love and his willingness to marry you at the cross. But it was not complete because he said, wait, there is a wedding night. There is an upper room. There is a place where I shall come and be in you and you shall be in me. And it is when they were endued by the Holy Spirit. The reason he did not release them to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world is because the wedding was not complete without the night. There is a place where God comes and lives in you. And you live in God. That is the place of the completion of your intimacy with God. It has to move beyond you knowing about him to you being intimate with him. To you being filled by him. That is the completion of this intimacy. There is a wedding night. There is a place called the wedding night. Now, one of the things that is important in the wedding night is you have to be naked and unashamed. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be open. God expects that you shall be open with him. God expects that you shall be open with him as he is open with you. Now, one of the things that the enemy does is he makes sure that you are ashamed of your nakedness before God. That's what happened to Adam. Adam realized that God is coming to find me and he needs for himself figs and covered his nakedness. Yet God expects that in a relationship that he is to have with you, there has to be the ability to be naked and unashamed. And I'd like to tell you, child of God, that the time that you need to run to God most is when you have been stripped naked by sin. The enemy will come to you and tell you, don't go to church. Don't go to God. Can't you see your nakedness? Let them do it, but you stay away from God. But God expects that when you're naked, that you should be unashamed before him and that you should run to him. That when sin has stripped you of your dignity, the one person that you should run to is Jesus. Now today if you fell in a mud pit, one of the first things you would look for is water. You wouldn't look for juice. You wouldn't look for wine. It would be peculiar for you to, to, to meet you. You're going to back to buy wine or to buy, or to buy pick and peel because you have fallen in mud and you need to clean the mud. It's weird. You need water. And the only person that has water is Jesus. That's why in Ephesians he says, I have committed myself as your lover to wash you by the washing of water, which is my word. So that every time sin blots your nakedness, Christ who wants to beautify you is ready with the water because he wants to see the beauty that he saw or that he is looking for in Songs of Solomon chapter 4. A perfect beauty. And he doesn't want it to be blotted by sin. So let me encourage you, regardless of what you go through or what sin you have struggled with, do not let the enemy to convince you to stay away from God. On your worst day as a believer, seek after God. On your worst day as a believer, run to God. On your worst day as a believer, run to Jesus. Because he is not ashamed of your nakedness. He knows it already. He was there when you were committing that act that caused you to be naked. You know, Jesus is not a bouncer at a club. That if you walk into a club and then he's like, hey, me here, you go in and then when you come out, you'll tell me what you did. 
He knows everything that you do in darkness. So the best thing that you could do is take your nakedness to God. Now, of course, and this is a sermon for another day, there is a problem when you have a child who keeps falling into mud every day. Like if, imagine if my daughter fell into mud on Monday, fell into mud on Tuesday. There's a place that there has to be some chastisement. There has to be a hand, the rod of authority to keep that child from constantly falling into mud. Again, I say that is a sermon for another day. But you'd rather fall into the hands of God than fall into the hands of men. Men will talk about your nakedness. You will tell them about it in secret. They will publicize it on Tuko. They will give fresh, fresh gossip. You know, let me tell you, please, now CMBM2. You know how many people will tell each other CMBM2? I'll call Mashauri, Mashauri CMBM2, please, swear, CMBM2. Mashauri will call Koki, Koki, CMBM2, CMBM2. By morning, there are a thousand people who've been told to CMBM2. So the whole church is looking at you, but they're trying to hide the fact that they know. You can see through their faces, ah, this guy knows what I did yesterday, but they're trying to keep the promise that Hawata Ambiam to. The one person who hides your shame after you have brought it to him is Jesus. That's why he says, as far as the east is from the west, so will I cast your transgression away from you. As a father has compassion on his children, so do I have compassion on them that I love. God is not interested in shaming his children. God will never, ever be interested in shaming you. So I pray that you shall discern by the leading of the Holy Spirit that the one person that you should run to in your nakedness is God. That you shall not put your hope in the hand of man, in the arm of flesh, but Jesus, who is the rose of Sharon, shall be the one that you run to at your time of nakedness. He shall be the one that you plead to. His name shall be the name that you cry out to. Because only his name can cleanse you from that that you struggle with. David understood this. Because when he had sinned with Uriah's wife, he says, against you and you alone. We are like, no, David, you sinned against Uriah. Have I sinned and done what is unrighteous in your sight? David knew that the first person that he needs to go to was God. Let God be your first person that you run to with your nakedness. Let God be the first person that you run to with your nakedness. Wow, my time. Okay, I want to finish by 12.10. So let me do the two other points. One of the things that is essential for a honeymoon night is that it has to be private. That the most, the most intimacy that a couple has is not when they kiss on stage. It's in the privacy of their bedroom. So I pray for you that, that, that you shall have more intimacy with God in private. Because the wedding night is 80% a function of your closet and 20% a function of the public. Your intimacy with God is first strengthened in your closet. That's why Sunday cannot be the place that you come to cry to God. There has to be a private closet where you seek the Father, where you are vulnerable to God. This is an overflow of what happens in the privacy of your time of intimacy with God. So I pray for you today that your time of intimacy shall be enriched. That you shall find time for your lover. That every day in the morning you shall wake up and seek after him. Because ideally, this kind of intimacy was meant to be most expressed in the privacy of your time of koinonia with God. Amen? To the final point. Now, it is important that God knows you. And God is very serious about knowing you. 
Isaiah says in Isaiah 49 that he has, he has inscribed you in the palm of his hand. Do you know how intimate that is? Have you ever seen uh, couples that have tattoos of each other? I'm not saying it's right. I saw it when I was in the world. You know, uh, Jack loves gin. And they have put it at a place where you can see it. Where they lift up their hands in worship and you see it. It's a sign of love. Now, what unto you if Jean breaks up with you and marries Jerry? You'll figure out what to do with the tattoo. You can turn it into a lion. But the, those times, those times, by the time you inscribe your body with someone else's name, it is a sign of the love and the importance that they bear in your life. Now, God says he has inscribed you in the palm of his hand. So he shows how serious he is about this relationship with you. In Zephaniah, he says, uh, he delights over you with joy. Do you know what delighting over someone with joy is? Now, if you have cousins who are doctors, you know how their uncles keep bringing in, you know, this kind of pastor doc. In our generation, every parent wanted their children to be doctors. So you're talking about something non-related. You know, you know, my son is a doctor. And in the other way, the other day he was telling me that Ugali, I'm like... This has nothing to do with him being a doctor. But parents do this because they delight with joy in the achievement of their children. Have you ever seen how your mom dances over you when you have victory? Graduation. I don't know whether you graduated the old school way. Did a circle leave from your village to your graduation? If that did not happen, you did not have a proper graduation. You know, by looking at the circle, you can know where you come from. Here, Manatua, these ones are from Muranga. Molo line, these ones we know they are from Molo or Nakuru, because we look at the at the circle. So if your relatives did not come and dance over you with joy, your graduation is not complete. But I know for those of us who experienced that, you saw the joy on your mother when she came with that uh, Mushaino. I know your graduate. She didn't even know what you did. <laughs> Maybe you even did anthropology. She what? She does not care. You're a graduate. She just comes with that Mushaino, and you know. This is my son. He has graduated from the university. So when God says in Zephaniah, he dances over you with joy. That is the image that, that you have of one who delights over you. God is not ashamed of you. I don't know whether you have seen uh, selfies of a person who looks like they're on holiday by themselves. Have you ever seen those selfies? Like someone is in, uh, is in uh, what is this place called? That you're in the bingo or you're in, uh, which, or in Hemingways. But all the time, we cannot see the person that you are on holiday with. Partly, it's because you are ashamed of that person. We know your income. We know you cannot afford that presidential suit. You do not want to display Omo husband. So, you are there. Oh, the Lord is good. The Lord is great. Because you are ashamed of your spouse. But God is not ashamed of you. God will not take a selfie without you. He will put his head in the selfie. Because he dances over you with joy. He delights over you. Now God expects that you, you delight over him. This is my final point. God doesn't want to be an omu husband. He wants you to be proud of the relationship that you have with him. It is not something that you carry with shame. I know there are some of you who are driving out today and then that guy that you party with found you at the parking lot. Have you, you guy, where are you going? But I'm just stepping out to two rivers. And you know you are coming to church. You know very well that you are coming to church. But you have not gotten to the point where you delight over the relationship that you have with God. God wants you to delight 
in that relationship that you, I've realized I stay this side too long because my wife is there. God wants you to delight in the relationship that you have with him. God wants you to delight in him. Now the thing is, it is not enough to know about God. God wants you to know him. One of the things that happened at the cross in Matthew 23, and, and the worship team can start coming, is uh, the thief said, do not forget me when you enter into your kingdom. The thief did not say, I will not forget you when I die and go to the afterlife. The most important thing was for Christ to remember the thief and not the thief to remember Christ. Now, if you have ever interacted with reality TV or radio, I know some of you who are young grew up with the Kardashians. In your head, Kim Kardashian is your sister. You watched all the shows. You know her birthdays. So there is something in the inside of you that makes you think that you're friends. For those of you who, who listen to Maina and Kingan, you know that. There's a way Maina Kageni has a way of making you feel like your buddies. Like he's pouring his heart to you. You listen to it every morning. I know most of you are born again and it's the matatu that has forced you to listen to Maina and Kingan. So I'm not judging you. I'm just giving you situational wisdom. I know you call. I hear people call. Let me tell you Maina. Maina has no idea who they are. You're calling from your village in Maragoliland. He has never been to Ushirinjiri village in Maragoliland. But because he has to earn a living, he has to pretend that he knows you. When you meet him in town and you jump to him with a hug, you will be arrested by police. Because in as much as you know him, he does not know you. This is what will happen to people in heaven. The Bible says that there are guys who will come and he will say, eh, depart from me, workers of iniquity. I did not know you. So it is important for you to make sure that in as much as you know God, God knows you. God is willing to know you. I told you in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, he knocks at the door of your heart. It is for you to open so that he may come into your heart and you may know him and he may know you. When our current president was being sworn in, I saw people congratulating him with his pet name. You know, his wife calls him Bill in public because of the relationship that they have. Now, if you call him Bill, it's awkward. Like if you came and called my wife Babe, it's awkward. But if I called her Babe, it's not awkward because I have cononia with her. I know her. We are married. God wants you to, to know him. It is not enough for you to know about him. God wants ultimately that you too shall open your heart fast to knowing him and invest your time and energy in getting to be intimate with him. Knowledge of God is beyond reading. It's intimacy in prayer. It is at the point of prayer that the spirit of God reveals to you who God is. God will reveal himself to you. You have to take the step, if you're not a believer, of inviting him into your heart. That step cannot be skipped, regardless of how much God loves you. You have to take the step of going into your prayer closet. If you're a believer who is seeking intimacy with God, that step cannot be skipped. God will not kidnap you in your bed and strip you and put you in the prayer closet. And then you'll wake up miraculously speaking in tongues. There has to be a commitment from God. And today God sent me to ask you for a commitment. Because as I've been preaching through the laws of Sharon, God has shown me his commitment. He died for you on the cross. He delights in you publicly. 
God also desires that you show him your commitment. That you show him how much you are interested in being in this relationship. Now let me tell you for free that in this relationship, God is the prize. God is the prize. God is the one. You are the lucky one to be married to God. There is nothing that God gains from being in a relationship with you. All of this is a function of grace. It's a function of the grace of God. God wants you to find him. Let me invite you to stand so that we may pray and finish. Thank you for sticking into the end. We hope you are blessed by this message. Follow us for more of these messages when new episodes drop and make sure to rate us so that more people can find out about us. Bye-bye.